you look up here, Darren's all dressed in black. Now I see Terry's all dressed in black, and uh, Danny, our associate pastor, was dressed all in black, and here I am, got dark colors, and it's Valentine's Day. And uh, shows there are a lot of romantics up here on this stage, I tell you. It's ironic, you know, and I said that we're not trying to send a message. That's, that's not, you know, in protest of Valentine's Day or anything like that. It's just guys being guys. Just, we didn't think about it, right? <laughs> no, it's being focused on the ministry, and that's all you think of. They'll get to Valentine's Day later on. I just thought it was pretty funny. Romans 12, as I uh, stated last week, we are going to be reading this several times before we are done. And so let's all stand together and read these first two verses again. Romans 12, 1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, I pray that as we keep reading this over and over, that the truths will begin to sink deep down into our hearts, that we may, um, God, live by these. That Lord, this verse will just be a natural outflow of our worship to you, of the way that we live. And uh, Lord, I want nothing more than for you to look glorious in the words that I say up here. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to, to, to give me those words, to guide me, Lord, and, and let us be changed by them, that you may be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> now before we get into the next part of this passage here in Romans, I want to spend some time talking about something that has to do with the message I preached last week. Because whenever I talk about what Jesus has accomplished for us and the finality of the cross and what that means, there are some questions that inevitably will come up from some folks. And I want to address those questions before we go any further in this. Um, the miraculous grace that God extended to us through Jesus, if preached correctly, really does sound too good to be true. Especially to those who are more accustomed to hearing a lot of law being preached than they are hearing grace. And so questions will come up. And those questions are very valid because biblical Christ-centered grace does not line up with the way our carnal human minds operate. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are so much higher than your ways. Now, that's a a pretty well-known verse. We Christians like to quote that verse a lot, and we will apply it to many different situations. But God specifically was saying that in reference to the gospel. Isaiah 55 is a prophecy of the grace that would come through Jesus, and God says this right in the middle of that 
prophecy. And so in essence, he was saying that the way that you relate to and deal with each other is not the way that I am going to relate to and deal with you through my son Jesus. Our ways are things like someone remains in our graces as long as they don't do anything to jeopardize that. As soon as they do something that I don't like, do something against me, they're out of my graces. Our ways are, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Or, I did something good for you, and even though I may not say that I expect anything or, 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 or want anything from you, in the back of my mind, the truth is, yeah, I expect that to be paid back somehow. You know, I expect you to appreciate that in, in some way. And so in the back of our minds, we're always going to hold that over the person, what we did for them. The way that we relate to one another on a human level is that a lot of people have to earn our forgiveness and our grace and our re- respect. And so when Scripture explains grace through Christ in ways that don't line up with any of that, that don't really fit the way that we operate with one another, immediately a red flag is going to go up, and we're going to go, whoa, wait a minute. That can't be right. That sounds way too good to actually be true. And so before we go any further, I want to address some of those red flags that people have. Last week we talked about the difference between Old Covenant sacrifice and New Covenant sacrifice Because Jesus was the full and final sacrifice, that means there are no more sacrifices that are needed or required on our part. There is nothing that we can offer God that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has not already taken care of. There is nothing that we can do for God that will improve our status with Him or gain us any more leverage with God or earn us any more favor or reward us any more blessings, no more than we already have in Jesus. In Him, we have all of those things that we are ever going to need, more than we could possibly imagine or hope for. And if we really knew how much all of that was, I guarantee you a lot of us would be living a whole lot different than the way we do now. And so here are the three most asked questions that inevitably come up whenever I talk about the grace of the gospel. I'm sure some of you probably had some of these same thoughts after the message last week, because last week was some pretty radical grace. The most common one is where people get worried that others might take grace as an excuse to just keep living in sin. And I can definitely see how someone might think that because, after all, if Jesus paid for all of my sin already, my past sin, present sin, and future sin, if I'm already forgiven, if it's already there, then why shouldn't I just keep on living in sin if forgiveness is not something that I have to worry about? This is always going to be an issue when the gospel is being preached correctly. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was one of the greatest theologians in all of England, said to a gathering of evangelical pastors, he, he told them, he said, if you are not being accused of giving people a license to sin, then you are not preaching the gospel. 
And here is why we shouldn't be afraid to preach radical grace, worrying about how somebody else might take that, that they may abuse that. First of all, um, I've come to discover that people don't need a license to sin. I mean, we've been pretty good at sinning without a license ever since the beginning. But the main reason is because of how Paul addresses this very issue at the beginning of Romans 6. He basically says that if we have truly been regenerated through faith in Jesus Christ, that it can't happen. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. He says, how can we who have died to sin continue to still live in it? That was a rhetorical question with the answer being understood understood to be that we can't. If we have died to it, we cannot just willingly go on and live in it. The moment that we trust Jesus, our sin nature dies. And we are given the divine nature of Jesus Christ himself. Before salvation, all we knew was sin. We loved sin. We craved sin. Everything we did was sin. We couldn't help it because we were held in bondage to it. That is how our sin nature operated. But when it died and we received the Holy Spirit, our desire for sin was replaced with something that we didn't have before, which is now a desire to not sin. Those who have been regenerated by God's saving grace and have the Holy Spirit living inside of them are not going to willingly, purposely seek out ways, opportunities, and excuses to just sin more. It goes completely against our new nature. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to sin, but what it does mean is in the times that we do sin, there's two things that we're going to do that weren't there before salvation. We're going to feel convicted about that, and we are going to repent. If there's no conviction and no repentance, then there's no Holy Spirit. Those who will use grace as an excuse to keep living in sin simply haven't been saved. And so we shouldn't be worried that lost people are going to sin more because of the grace that we're talking about because that's not going to make them any worse off than they already are. I mean, their problem isn't the fact that they sin a lot. Sin is a symptom of the bigger problem that they have is that they're, they're not saved. They're lost. They need Jesus. They need a change of heart more than they just need a change of behavior. The behavior is not going to come unless the heart's changed. The only thing that can change a heart is the truth of the gospel. And so we need to keep preaching radical grace over and over and over again until it finally takes hold and sets them free from that bondage of sin that they're in. When someone whose heart has been changed by the truth of the gospel, when we hear radical grace, man, that won't make us sin more. It's going to make us want to love God more. I mean, instead of producing sin, what it should produce in us is worship. I mean, when I hear about God's unmerited grace and how he did everything for me that I could never do for myself and how all I could ever hope for or imagine from God is just found in Jesus and not in anything I do, my gosh, that blows me away. I mean, the last thing I want to do is go, okay, good, now how can I go sin more? 
man, that makes me just want to raise my hands. It humbles me and say, God, how can I honor that? Man, I want to live a life that reflects that. And so in your notes, the first point, the question is, will people take grace as a license to sin? The answer is, if they are lost, they might. But if they're saved, they won't. That's the bottom line. Then question number two. If all of my sin has been forgiven already, does that mean that I don't have to ask for forgiveness when I do sin? The answer to that is in a statement that we all must keep in mind. That's the next thing in your notes. Well, the question is, do we not have to ask for forgiveness? The answer is that we are in a relationship with God, not a contract. And here's what I mean by that. There are times where I'm going to do something against my wife that Carol's not going to like, things that I shouldn't have done that are going to hurt her. Now, I know that her forgiveness is there. Because of her love for me and my love for her and the fact that we have absolutely committed to staying together until we, one of us dies, that forgiveness is there. I know that because she has the Holy Spirit living inside of her that she doesn't have an option. She has to forgive me. <laughs> and not only that, because she has the Holy Spirit living inside of her, she is going to forgive me. And so technically, I don't have to go to her and ask for her forgiveness in order for her to give it to me. But, like I said, we're in a relationship, not a contract. And so I'm going to go to her, and I'm going to own up to what I've done. I'm going to confess that to her, and I'm going to ask for her forgiveness. And me doing that is not what causes her to extend forgiveness to me. It was already there. But doing that does draw us closer together because there is relationship communication that is going on. And so, yes, because of the finished work of Jesus at the cross, forgiveness is something that is in your account. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have forgiveness. It's not will get, not hope to get, not if you do this, you'll get it. It's something that you have And when you sin, which we all will, then you go ahead and you own up to it and you bring that to Jesus. You confess it and you repent of it, which means turning to Jesus and at the same time turning away from that sin and then revel in the glory of his forgiveness that has already been provided for you at the cross. Worship him for the forgiveness that is in Jesus. And then finally, the most... The third most popular question, if Jesus has already done it, if he's already done everything for me, does that mean that I don't have to do anything? And really it depends. Do anything for what? If you mean do anything to earn his forgiveness or gain his favor or do anything to make him like you more than he does now, then the answer is no, you don't have to do anything. You have all of that in Jesus. But here's the deal. When you realize what you have in Jesus, realize what he has done and who you are in him, you are naturally going to want to do something. 
you are going to want to live a life that honors what he's done. You're going to want to, to live a life that reflects who you are in him. You're going to want to live in ways that shows others that he is your greatest treasure. Like I often say, which is answering your notes there, our standing with God is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has already done. And if you believe what he's done and what that means for you, you're naturally going to want to do things that reflect that. I mean, what we do is a large aspect of the Christian life, which is something we're going to talk about in just a minute. But do you know that Jesus actually addressed the same issue at one point in his ministry? In John chapter 6 was where the people saw him perform two of his greatest miracles. When he feeds the 5,000 people with just a few pieces of fish and bread, and then he walks on top of water. And the people saw that, and so they wanted whatever it was he had. They knew that there was something different about this man, and so they wanted whatever it was he had. They wanted to get in on whatever it was he was doing, because this was amazing. And so in verse 28, they asked him, they said, what must we do? That we may work the works of God. It's a natural question that comes from our default nature. That we think in order to do this, I have to do this. In order to have to get this, I've got to earn it. And so I've got to do something in order to do this. And you know what Jesus' answer was? He said, here's what you do. You believe. That's it. You believe. He said, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. You see, believing in Jesus was the only way for them to get in on what he was about. It was the only way for them to tap into the power that he was displaying there. Jesus knew this, which is the next point. What we do is a reflection or a result of what we believe. So he knew that if if they would just believe that what they did would just be a natural result of that. See, what Jesus was doing there was going after their heart instead of going after their behavior. Because he knew once he had their heart, the behavior would take care of itself. So there you go. Hopefully I've answered some of the questions that some of you may have had that usually come up with grace. For when you go and tell others of Jesus' radical grace, which I hope you're doing, you'll know how to answer those questions when they come up too. But more than anything, to be able to know how to answer those questions, it's not about carrying around these notes with you as a cheat sheet. It's about getting into God's word yourself so you will know it here. All right, so let's get back in the text. This, I've been looking forward to this. This is good stuff here. Based on what we've learned so far here in the first verse of Romans 12, we know that Paul is um, telling us to build our lives on the mercy of God. We exist to put God's mercy in Christ on display. And Paul's going to give us some practical ways to do that throughout chapter 12. But before he describes the Christian life as merciful, he describes it as worshipful. I said last week that we cannot separate worship from mercy. 
And when we do, then we make Christianity nothing more than an agenda of just social justice, which is a popular buzzword that you hear out in the world today. You know, if you were to ask a bunch of churchgoers to write down a definition of worship, the way a lot of people are today, I think a lot of them are going to say it has uh, something to do with, with singing songs or, or playing music to God. And that may be just a small, very small part of what it means to worship God. But Paul actually defines what true worship is here in verse 1. And he tells us that it's a much more than just playing music and singing songs. In fact, in this particular text, he doesn't say anything about music at all. And so if we really want to worship God the way that he wants to be worshipped, rather than the way that we want to worship him, we better start expanding our definition of worship and think outside of just the music box. Paul defines what he calls our spiritual service of worship. The NIV says your true and proper worship. Now the message today is really the first part of a mini-series within the series of Romans. We're going to be looking at each of the four words that Paul uses to define true worship. We're just going to look at the first one in the remainder of this, the time this morning. The first one is our bodies. He says present your bodies. And so in your notes, true worship involves number one, our body. The word that Paul used in the Greek, which is translated into present here, present our bodies, is the Greek word peristemi, which means to present for one's disposal. It's the same word that was used in Matthew 26, 53, when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter got all mad and and tried to defend Jesus, and he pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of the the temple servant, and Jesus rebuked him, and he told him to put his sword away, and he said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal, peristeme, more than 12 legions of angels? He said the father would peristeme over 100,000 angels for Jesus' use. And so Paul is saying in Romans 12, 1, that we worship God by presenting to him, giving him our bodies to be used however he wants to use them. And this right here just shows one aspect of how awesome God's grace really is. You know, in our culture today, body image is a really big deal. We are obsessed with how our bodies look. Some of us more so than others. (laughs) And men, we all know what the most frightening question our wives could possibly ask us is, right? Anything that has to do with what they're wearing and how it makes them look. Am I right? Because there is no right way to answer that question. There's not. It is one of the great mysteries of the universe. Many of us have thought we finally got the answer right just to find ourselves sleeping on the couch later that night. (laughs) I think we've all discovered the hard way how not to answer that, but the right answer just always seems to evade us. (laughs) You may have heard the poor fellow that ended up in the hospital after this one of these discussions. His wife said, honey, does this dress make me look big? He said, baby, the dress ain't got nothing to do with it. 
Not a smart man. I found something fascinating while I was sitting in the waiting room of a, of a doctor's office one day and looking at this magazine, and there was this, th- these two lines of pictures. There were these silhouettes of different body shapes that started with real skinny and then morphed up into being physically fit and then went into being overweight and obese at the end. And there was a line of, of men and a line of women, these different body types. And it was asking the reader to identify which body type they thought most accurately represented their own. And so then on the back, it explained how this was a survey, a test that went out to thousands of people all over the country. And what they found was that nearly 100% of the time that the women would pick a body image that was actually more overweight than they actually were. And the men would pick a body image that was actually more buff than they actually were. (laughs) We have an unhealthy fixation with our body image and our culture today. But here's how God's grace is so good in this. Remember, Paul says to present our bodies to God as a sacrifice to him. He's using old covenant terminology to illustrate a new covenant truth. Last week, we talked about how animal sacrifices were required in order for the people to remain in in good standing with God. Those animals that they presented had to be absolutely perfect. They had to be pristine. These couldn't be the rejects of the herd that they didn't want anyway. They had to be the best of the best. There could be no blemish in those animals at all. In fact, in the first chapter of Malachi, God is scolding Israel for presenting unacceptable sacrifices to him. In verse 8, he says, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? And then down at the end of verse 10, he says, I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you, because they were giving him these sick, diseased, and lame animals as sacrifices. And so with an old covenant perspective and mentality, someone might read Romans 12, 1, and think, why in the world would God want my body? It's overweight, it's wrinkled, It's blotchy, achy, diseased, awkward, disabled, hard of hearing, stiff, weak. What kind of sorry offering to God is that? The Old Testament demanded a flawless sheep. I surely don't measure up. That kind of thinking completely misses the point here. And the truth is, your body will never be acceptable to God on its own. It's only through Christ we are accepted by him. Now listen, God's requirement, just like it was in the Old Testament, is still absolute perfection. He is a perfect God who requires nothing less than perfection. A requirement that your body will never meet, no matter how good you think you look. If we are acceptable to God, it is only through the perfection of Jesus, not our own perfection. But the offering of our bodies isn't the offering of our bodily looks. It's the offering of our bodily behavior, how we live. In the Bible, the body is not significant because of how it looks. 
The body is significant because of what it does, how it acts. And so the last point in your notes, our imperfect bodies are given to make visible the beauty of Christ. Now let your minds dwell on this thought I'm fixing to give you here for a minute. The hour of Jesus' greatest beauty was when his body was repulsive to look at. He was most beautiful when his physical body was repulsive. When his body hung on the cross covered in blood, ribbons of flesh hanging from his back, his face all swollen and bruised, his beard being ripped away from his cheeks and places, and a grotesque hole in his side that was just oozing thick blood and water because it would have already begun to coagulate. In that moment, looking that bad, Jesus was breathtakingly beautiful. Because his was the beauty of love, not the beauty of looks. And it wasn't nails that kept Jesus on that cross. It was love that put him there, and it was love that kept him there until he breathed his last breath. He could have come down at any moment. He was absolutely beautiful, and it was the beauty of sacrifice, not the beauty of skin. God doesn't demand our bodies because he thinks he's glorified in our looks. He wants our bodies so that he can be glorified in our actions. What he wants is a body that does mercy and turns heart, not turns heads. He wants visible, lived out bodily evidence that our lives are built on his mercy. And he wants us with our bodies to carry his mercy into places and relationships and crises in this world where his mercy is needed most. And it may may be right there in your home or it may be in your workplace or it could be somewhere on the other side of the world. We worship God by offering him our body to be used in a way that reflects his beauty and his mercy. And your body doesn't have to look pretty in order to make Jesus look beautiful. And to all you young girls and all you ladies in here, I want you to listen to me. You will never be as beautiful as you are when you let Jesus shine through you. You will never be as beautiful as you are. When you let Jesus shine through you, please believe that. Please stop believing the lies of this world that tell you what real beauty is. You don't have to spend hours and hours and piles of money to make yourself look beautiful on the outside when all you have to do is let Jesus shine through you and make his beauty and his mercy look glorious. I promise you, people will be more attracted to that than they will with how your makeup is put together. Philippians 1.20, Paul said this. My earnest expectation and hope is that I will not be put to shame in anything, 
but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Oh, that we would make that the desires of our heart. Worshiping God is so much more than just singing songs to Him. And I'm going to close by saying this, something that I believe that the Holy Spirit really impressed on me. And I want you to listen up before you start gathering things up. So when I started talking about how body image has become an unhealthy obsession in our world today, that really hit home with some of you in here. I'm telling you right now, God wants to set you free from that bondage. He wants to set you free this morning. How many of us in here spend more time, effort, and money on building our bodies than we do building God's kingdom? How many of us do more to make our bodies look good than we do to make Jesus look glorious? So I'm telling you right now, that is an endeavor and a pursuit that has no end. You will never come to a place or a level where you look in the mirror and go, that's it. I have arrived. I don't have to make myself look any better. You will never, in your eyes, look good enough, be good enough. You'll never achieve a level where you are satisfied in how you look until you are completely satisfied in Jesus. He wants to be your complete satisfaction. The only perfection that he wants you to pursue is his perfection. The only perfection you're about. Now listen, I'm not saying making ourselves look nice is wrong. I'm not saying exercise is wrong. But folks, we have absolutely made it an idol. When it becomes an idol, that's when it's a problem. I'm telling you right now, the Holy Spirit is in this place and he's dealing with hearts on this issue and he wants to tear those idols down in your life so that you can know him more and people can see him better in your life. It is a miserable to be bound up in that bondage of trying to achieve some worldly beauty. God wants to set you free this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know just like you did with those people who asked you what they needed to do, God, right now in this place, you're dealing with hearts. You're going after somebody's heart this morning, Lord, exposing some things that that don't reflect you, things that you want them to lay before you to repent of, God, things that you want to replace with your grace and your mercy and your truth and your love. God, I pray that all over this building, people will start seeing themselves the way that you see them in Christ, not the way that the world sees them.
God, I pray for the young girls in here who have already believed in the lie from Satan. But they're not pretty enough. They're not skinny enough. They're not whatever. Lord, would you allow your love and your grace to shower over them so much that it doesn't matter to them what anybody else in this world says about them. God, that the only beauty that would be concerned about anyone's sin is your beauty. Your grace and your mercy that is shown in the way that they live. Lord, I pray that the idol of body image will come crashing down in this place this morning. Lord, whether it's on one end of the spectrum or the other. And Lord, you would open our eyes to just be able to see you for who you are. And just fall in humility at that. So Holy Spirit, come now and do what you do best. Work in our hearts, Lord. Show us the Son. In Jesus' name we pray.